Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. (laughs) 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Slumber Party Massacre is over. Do you think I'll ever be beautiful? The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party. The party begins at 8 o'clock. Love it too. You think I'm getting better? <laughs> but be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. You're underage. Negative. Let's go. You're not going to eat the dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. But for those who stay, there'll be plenty of surprises. And non-stop action. sure no one's getting any sleep the night of the slumber party massacre close your eyes for a second and sleep forever andy it's slumber party massacre time <laughs> yay <laughs> why are we talking about this movie all of these movies this you know i i think as we were putting our list together of different franchises that we wanted to tackle this season as we were looking at franchises and series this was an interesting one that popped into our radar because the entire trilogy, uh, each film was directed by women. And, you know, last season, the entire season was uh, films directed by women. And so um, in the realm of slasher films, this one kind of stood out because it, it's an interesting anomaly, unfortunately, just because of the fact that uh, every film was directed by a woman. So we thought that would be an interesting reason to explore this franchise. And here we are. And here we are. Um, we, I um, tell you straight, I'm, I watched all three of them back to back. I did a triple feature <laughs> of the Slumber Parties Massacred. And uh, I'm, I've got a little bit of a headache, but I did it. <laughs> and we are proud of you, Pete. We are proud of you. <laughs> well, the Slumber Party Massacre, when it was released, was rated R. No surprise there. Uh, we've got boobs and butts and blood and guts. All sorts of good stuff. <laughs> that was great. Did you write that out before you said it? No, but I, I, I was proud of myself that I accidentally rhymed that. <laughs> so good. Really impressed. <laughs> Had you ever seen this one? No, I I knew of this, but it kind of fell into this world of these 
slasher films that I knew existed, I just hadn't seen. Like, there's the Slumber Party Massacre and the Sorority House Massacre. And, like, there's this whole genre of just slasher films through the 80s that, you know, uh, they would go, um, you know, more boobs, less boobs, more blood, less blood. Um, it just, they all kind of had a tone and a feel. And I saw a lot of them, but I also missed a lot because I mean, there are a lot. <laughs> there are just so many. And so the Summer Party Massacre films, I, you know, I guarantee I saw the covers on the store shelves when I would go uh, rent movies, but I just, I ended, never ended up picking them up. Uh, I had never seen this one either, um, uh, directed by Amy Holden Jones, uh, written by Rita Mae Brown. You know, Michelle Michaels is in it and uh, uh, Robin Steele and Michael uh, Vieja. And uh, it's the story of um, a guy in denim and a red T-shirt with a drill and he's killing people. And there's (laughs) very little uh, set up to his motivation as Apparently, there doesn't need to be. <laughs> the setup for his motivation room. is the newspaper at the beginning of the film. Yep. <laughs> Russ says, Thorne has escaped. <laughs> Russ Thorne has escaped. Uh, mass murderer of five. And that's mass pretty murder of five. much his setup. He's escaped. And now we know he's just going around to kill more people. It was a thing. <laughs> and one of the one of the best bits about the set, the continued setup, is that the they keep turning on the radio. Like the first sound from the radio is her waking up, and it's the news, and um, and it's all about him. They keep turning off. It's that old that that old gag, which is was I guess maybe it was a newer gag, but I don't know when the first time this was used. When they turn off the radio in the middle of important important information many people do it in this movie the volleyball <laughs> coach does it the everyone does it in this in this movie they're constantly turning off the radio import in the middle of very important information what do you think of russ thorns uh, russ thorn is a killer does he live up there i'm gonna say i already know the answer to this does he live even <laughs> close to orbit of like jason and michael and freddie why is russ thorn not one of those that we're talking about in the in the Oove of great slasher killers. Well, I, unlike you, I have only seen the first one. I didn't watch the whole trilogy. And so I can't speak to the sense of Russ Thorne as a killer who, like, might come back. And I think that there's reason why people like Jason and Freddy um, are continued continually talked about because they come back you know michael myers is back and and they continue coming back in the sequels and i i'm assuming russ thorne he seemed like a pretty ordinary guy there was nothing that felt supernatural about this particular character so my hunch is that when he dies at the end of this film uh that he's not going to be back for parts two or three and so to that end i guess maybe that's part of the reason is that in the scope of somebody who is this crazy killer there's just nothing there's no reason to kind of remember him because he doesn't get a chance to come back. He also never really says anything. I mean, he he mumbles numbers at one point, but that's pretty much, I think, all he all he does. <laughs> so it's not like he has any quippy lines, yeah. you know? Yeah, he does. And, he, you know, he's, he's you're beautiful. You're so every one of oh, you is yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I love you. Like he does that. It, it's. I don't know if that's like a like self-talk or affirmation for an escaped <laughs> serial killer. Uh, we do get a little of him, but generally, he, you're right. He's he's uh, silent and uh, deadly with his with his power drill. The drill never runs out of juice, constantly charged. 
I have never had that experience with a drill, especially one of this size. Well, you don't use it for very long runs. See, that's the thing. Like, he's not drilling for a prolonged period of time. He drills only for like, you know, 10, 15 seconds on each person. And therefore, you know, you're okay. Yeah. That's true. You're, no, that's that's true. But but the other thing about this drill, I think that I I would like to lean in on is the fact that the the drill tip is split with a machete. What? <laughs> that's that is one of my favorite blooming onions of motivation, mechanical motivation. One, why is there a machete in the house? Um, that's a strange thing. Don't you and don't two, you have one in your garage? Your <laughs> I have weird stuff in my house. Machete is not one of them. Um, <laughs> so that that was that. I feel like uh, uh, Russ Thorne. I I don't. I guess I don't want to spoil next week's conversation for you to yeah. confirm or deny what happens in the second movie. Um, so I won't. But but I think it's interesting that I, there is so much lacking in terms of Russ Thorne as a character design. Like, and I feel like his treatment is not mysterious enough. This movie goes back and forth between first and third person. We get a little bit of first person view from him. Would have made it a kind of interesting Black Christmas homage, right? That had they really committed to the bit and they never committed to the bit. So you get the mystery of him kind of and, and it's very quickly resolved that it's just a guy with a face and no mask and no mystery and no charisma at all. It's just a guy with a drill. And that puts a lot of weight um, on the the girls, frankly, uh, because the the guys are all sort of uh, uh, from a character perspective neutered quickly, um, and so it puts a lot of weight on the girls to hold up a, a meaningful sort of fight. And uh, I I think to the degree to which you like or appreciate this movie may extend to the degree to which you appreciate their efforts in putting up a fight. There are a few elements of this film that I think that they blend together. Uh, nicely. And, you know, it's interesting. I actually was looking around for the original script for this. So so Rita Mae Brown wrote this script. It was actually originally called Sleepless Nights, and it was a parody of slasher films. And that was and she's, you know, Rita Mae Brown is a, a feminist uh, writer and uh, probably best known for the novel Ruby Fruit Jungle, which was autobiographical. And she was very involved in civil rights and lesbian rights. And, and she had, she was a very vocal person. And this part of her career is probably not one that you would normally think of. Uh, although she, I mean, she did write a number of scripts um, or, or things that had been adapted into scripts. Um, and so, so she had had kind of dabbled with Hollywood, but primarily was known for writing mystery novels and poetry and stuff like that. Um, and so it's interesting that she, of all people, is the one who wrote this script. But again, it was designed as a satire on slasher films. And then when Corman got his hands on it, it uh, they reworked the script and uh, they they came, you know, I think that Corman wanted it to be a little more in line with the sorts of things that he would uh, release through uh, through his uh, production company. And so when Amy Jones came on to uh, to direct this, uh, she she was drawn to I don't I don't know, honestly, which script she actually saw and uh, was drawn to, but she wanted to make this film. And so there are it's like there are hints 
of some of that satire and the parody of slasher films in here. And some of the, like the way that things that certain scenes play, it feels like they're allowing more comedy in this than you would normally have gotten in slasher films at the time. In fact, as I was thinking through slasher films that I had seen, I feel like a couple years later with Nightmare on Elm Street is where the comedy element really kicks up a notch as far as the serial killer who is like, I mean, Freddy's got all the one-liners, but before that, I mean, Jason and Michael are pretty quiet. They don't really walk around saying things. Slasher films were a little more serious. And so I feel like there was this level of kind of making kind of like this raunchy teen sex comedy with the boys peeking through the window and watching the girls changing in the room with each other and they're all just taking their clothes off and as they're putting their pajamas on. Like, it felt like very teen sex comedy mixed with some of that serial killer stuff. And then you even get, like, spooky, uh, like, the, the, the house next door where the two sisters are. It They play that one almost like this... It's not a haunted house, but it, it they are playing with elements like hearing noises and things like that and swings that randomly are swinging. So I, there are a lot of things in here that I felt like I wasn't going to be seeing from other slasher films of the of the period, you know, and so that it was that you feel like it was reaching. It was actually punching out of its class. Well, I, I think that Amy Jones was trying to do some things with this that, um, you know, she couldn't do a lot because, again, the script had been reworked, but I did feel like it wasn't necessarily as serious as some other slasher films were of the time. I think that I, I, I think that's probably true. And I think that's, you know, I, Amy Holden Jones, I mean, I, she was reportedly on to edit E.T. for Steven Spielberg and and quit that job to direct this because she wanted to show something to show her chops. And I think that might be part of the issue with the film, that it was written as something that she didn't necessarily want to direct, that that she wanted to direct something more serious and took this took this thing where, where that could have been made, you know, much more of a comedy and made it something serious. And I think a lot of people, when they talk about this movie, people who are fans of the movie talk about it as the magic that exists between taking this, you know, overt comic material and taking it seriously. And I, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not one of those who's who's convinced that it works all the time. I think part of the problem with these with this movie in particular is that the result of taking the killer seriously, right, and not as as much of a joke is or or presenting him without the mysterious faces, you can you lose the ability to apply metaphor to it, right? This Jason and Freddie and they're all behind these the the facade of evil and uh, the escaped psycho killer who's just wearing jeans and a red T-shirt doesn't give you the facade of evil. It's just it's just a crazy guy. And so there's no ability to look at what this movie could could mean or, or to interpret it in, in any other way than a crazy guy has escaped and he's killing girls at a sorority house. And that makes this movie more sort of empty calories, I think, than um, than other movies. I never got the got to the point where I felt like the movie was making an assessment of anything more than itself which is fine it's fine um but i i didn't i didn't love it i'm not one of those who sees it as this magical sort of seminal piece in slasher lore no and i i don't either and i i i certainly had fun with it i mean it's I, we also got to say i mean it's only like an hour and 17 minutes long like it is a breeze to watch because yeah, it's just, it really is it's so short um, but I, I, you know, I, I could tell that uh, as the director, and again, she's working with 
the reworked script that that Corman gave her. She, as you said, she wanted to make a you know a calling card for herself, and 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 she had been an editor, was trying to get out of that, and she knew the only way she was going to be able to do it was to actually direct something herself. And as you said, she turned down editing ET so that she could you know have this opportunity with Corman, and so her husband, who's Michael Chapman, the cinematographer, they got some equipment uh, from UCLA and they shot a few scenes of this for um, $1,000 to show Corman. And that was enough for him to say, okay, you can do this. And so this is a person who is wanting to show her directing chops. And while largely, I think there's a lot of stuff going on in the film that feels very expected, but I do think that she is like, there were moments when, um, uh, is it Valerie who lives next door when she's going out to the trash a few times and the swing is suddenly swinging and stuff like there were, she, she built some genuinely like some moments that worked that, that were effective. And I think the the best directed moment of the film came when there was a moment where she's watching TV, somebody's at the door and the killer's outside stalking the person who's at the door and you're intercutting between uh, Valerie watching the TV, what we're seeing on the TV, and the person outside as they're about to get killed. And the intercutting is like so sharp and the movements are happening like they're they're mirroring each other in great ways. And like it was exciting to see, like she's actually trying to direct in a way where you can see it and you can see that she's giving us something more than we would normally be getting. And so it was exciting to have those moments and say, okay, there are moments throughout this film that aren't necessarily as exciting or as interesting, but at least we have these ones that do stand out. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with that. I actually, uh, I'll, I'll stand with that. I, the parts that take me out of the movie are actually not the horror parts. They're not the killer parts. They're not the directing or editing. I think you're what you're pulling out to me is a sign of a of somebody who is is able to sort of edit in camera and see what she wants to see because she's an editor. Like she's she gets it. I I really enjoy those moments. The basketball game, Andy. The basketball game. Pick a sport where your ca- principal cast actually can look like they can play that sport. I thought that I didn't know if that was part of the joke. If that was part of the the satire that we were making these these girls play basketball, um, but it took me right out of the. I felt like that might have been one of the most dated beyond the just raw exploitation of Corman era produced, uh, uh, you know, breast presentation. I was like, this is the the girls in school are ridiculous. Well, I, I mean, I I don't know. I you might be looking at that with a little too much um, um, <laughs> gravitas as far as what you're expecting oh, from I high school high, high school lot. scenes like this in, in an 80s I wanted Gene film. Hackman on because... the sideline <laughs> screaming at them is what I wanted. Well, it felt very much like what, and then, like what I was saying, like, there are those elements in this film that feel like the kind of the teen sex comedies. And you know, like, I mean, seeing those scenes of just like girls playing basketball in high school uh, gym class, it's just, you know, it felt like it's just part of it. It's just part of it. It just felt like, yeah, OK, we're just we're, we're now we're doing this scene uh, just so we can have them all needing to shower in the locker room because inevitably, yeah. uh, you know, so that's, that's many exactly showers. what's going to be happening. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Not just showers, but like 
a shower where you, the camera is like really lingering on the bodies, like yes. more than I am used to in, in shower scenes where it's just like, we're just going to go real slow up and down each of these so bodies. Many, yeah, just crazy, crazy yeah. lingering camera shots that felt like, like it's just super out of place to, to today's eye. And I'm not, I don't, like I, I'm all for sex in movies. <laughs> I'm really fine with with sex in movies. This this is the one that was like purposeless, exploitative bodies that didn't make a lot of sense to me, and it felt so of an era that has passed. Like it, well, it just yeah. So. But also at the same time, and it's interesting because this was the same year as Fast Times at Ridgemont High, um, and a year before, or a year, yeah, a year before Valley Girl, and. Uh, remembering our conversation about Valley Girl, which we covered, um, and how the producers required the director to have three boob shots in the film. You know, they they needed to have at least three times that a woman was going to take her top off. And I couldn't help but feel like the way that this was done was almost like, uh, you know, giving the finger to... Uh, to, I, I don't know if it would have been coming from Corman or if it was just scripted this way, but it just felt like, yeah, you're going to, you want this? All right, we're just going to stay on it forever. And because uh, it almost was to a point where of like weirdly boredom where it's just like, okay, now we're going to go slowly down her back. And it's just like, I don't know if it's sexy. And so coming from a female director, I just, I, it made me just think about this. Like, why is this done in such a lingering way? It was, it was. I don't know. I, it was just kind of surprising to me that it was done like that. The word I found were that there were two major changes from Corman uh, from the first script to the last. The first one was more boobs. And the second was amp up the final killing. That was and that added the pool. Uh, and so go big is pool. And so I, I don't know how much uh, other stuff was reworked, but the, everything that I I read was ended up saying that that Corman was the one who came in and said, this is what sells movies. This is what I know. And you're going to do this. This is what needs to happen. And that a, a number of the performers came back saying, OK, I'm fine doing it, but I'm not going to do it in a sexual context. I'm not going to get naked with somebody else like in the car. Those are that's that's where that line is drawn. But shower. Fine. Let's do let's do more shower stuff. So I thought that was actually really interesting. Especially because, to your point, with Corman saying more boobs, they're saying, okay, fine, we're just going to have them all Here naked in the shower, and it's yeah. going to go on forever, and we're going to, it's a ton of boobs, they're all just there for you, but there's nothing sexual happening. And it's an interesting, and that's why I found that scene interesting, it's, it's because it almost felt pointed as far as the way that the director might have been doing that as a way, like I was saying, to kind of, like, you know, give her finger to uh, New World Pictures. For sure. I mean, that's that, that it, it starts to kind of stink of that a little bit. Um, so, again, the movie lives in in liminal space. But I, but I think that's interesting. And I, I think that's why this film might still be talked about, you know, uh, a female director. And you have moments like this that uh, that do stand out. Yeah. 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 Uh, OK. The kills slash film. we got to talk about the kills. You know, before as well, I guess we say as we're talking about these kills, I do want to just comment on you. You were talking about kind of that first person POV and how we had that periodically throughout this film. And and I don't know if it really is a surprise, but it is, I suppose, worth pointing out that we do have at least once, maybe more, where you're getting those POV shots designed in a misleading way. And I think that's kind of, you know, it's nice to kind of have that where 
you're, it's not just the expected, okay, now somebody dies because we had a POV shot. The one I'm thinking specifically is when, and I can't remember which one it is, but she's walking and you see kind of a POV, a car driving up behind her and then a POV of the driver like running out to get her. And then it turns out to be her boyfriend. And, yeah, it's like Billy. Yeah. And it so always a Billy. <laughs> so, but at least, and then again, you know, it's it's not a huge surprise, especially through today's eyes, but it's nice to see that they were trying to play around with that trope at least a little bit in this. Agreed. Um, and, and I think we get another one with Mr. Um, content, Mr. Content. Oh, the <laughs> uh, I think he's in, do, do we get another one? The next door, na- creepy next door neighbor who's like in the house. Um, yeah, is I'm not, I can't remember. I'm trying to remember now. So much slumber party massacre, man. So much. It is kind of a weird moment with him. He's just a weird neighbor. I, I'm not sure what they were trying to say with him because he's a weird neighbor. He's played weird right out of the gate where she seems like, oh, God, the perv has to watch me while my mom and dad are out of town. Yeah. And then he steals her Barbie doll out of the trash. And so, like, okay, so he is a perv. But then they kind of seem like, oh, no, he's just the nice neighbor next door. Let's go get him, get help from him or whatever. You know, it's just like, is he creepy? But or that was the, that's another trick. He, did, I don't think he stole the Barbie doll out of the trash. That was the killer. That was rough. Was it? Okay. Well, I was, uh, for some reason, I thought, it was set up as him. I might have to look it, at that I think again. it was set up as him, but when the Barbie comes back and it's covered in blood and sawed in half and it's on the window, that was not Mr. Content. Like, I think that's no, no, the no. whole gambit of Mr. Content, right? But wasn't Mr. Content dead by then? And so that's why I thought that the Barbie, like, maybe the killer took it from him. But ah, I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to look that at it again is, to see. That would be an interesting little loophole because how would the killer know that the Barbie was hers? Like, why would that be an important thing at all? Like, if, like, the killer sees a Barbie doll in Mr. Content's house, like, does it have or this? He, maybe he was carrying it around in his pocket because he's a weird creep. I, I really, like, I, I don't remember. But I just, like, when the Barbie was taken, though, it was, like, right after she threw it in the trash. And I felt like it was at a point in the film where the killer wasn't even at this house yet. Like, I felt like the killer was still at the school. Wasn't he still in the van killing the girl in the... Uh, and throwing the body in the dumpster? It's possible. I feel like all of that was so early on that it has to be. It was so early on. You're yeah. right. Yeah. It, okay. The problem is they also cut it with the mysterious breathing. And I thought, why would Mr. Content be associated with breathing? But maybe that's it. He's just the pervy neighbor. And pervy neighbors also breathe like serial killers. That's because they're pervs. Exactly. Yeah. And and sneak into the house when she's. Okay. <laughs> the whole, I think he was that, just saying, Yeah. It makes no sense to me. I, and I think that's where I come out. I think you're probably uh, right, but also that doesn't make any sense to me either. <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, oh, okay, but there are there are some amusing kills. And I think the first one you talk about the telephone thing, that I got kind of a smile out of that because, again, it challenges one of those tropes, uh, throws one of those tropes right in our face where these guys are like 20 feet away from this, this sexiest telephone operator. Um, and uh, not, uh, they, uh, repair, repair, woman. repair person, repair woman. And the killer is already in the van. Trope number one, the killer is already in the van. Trope number two, she's <laughs> screaming in the van as it's rocking and slamming on the windows and these guys who are 20, 30 feet away don't hear her, right? Yet another one as they walk away completely ignorant of what's going on right behind them. And um, I, I think that was, that whole thing I thought was funny. That was funny. 
Yeah. And again, I don't know if this was original content from Brown's script or things that Jones wanted to kind of bring up as like elements of satire, but the fact that the boys are all completely emasculated over the course of the film. Like I, I found that to be interesting and, and and proven to be ineffectual in the realm of any sort of protector. Like yeah. that was an interesting element within the film. And certainly, I mean, I suppose you could say with a lot of slasher films where you always end up with kind of final girl, that whole trope, there is an element to that anyway. But you certainly get that here with these guys who are just so completely incompetent and unable to ever protect anyone like and this is the start of that we see them they're right there next to her yet they're so infatuated with how hot she is that they don't even they're not even aware of the fact that she is being killed in the van behind them right right so that was that to me was a good one yeah Uh, do you have other favorite kills oh boy well that's i was i was trying to count them as they were happening uh and i was trying to remember so the second one is the girl in the shower and that one was fun only because that one was like there was actual a chase to that one. You know, yes, it was through the locker room. It wasn't just suddenly like you open the door and he's right there and he drills you in your face or something like that. And so I liked that the second one actually had a little more a little more to it. You know, mm-hmm. after that, who is the third person killed? I was not keeping. Uh, oh, the neighbor was number three. Mr. Mr. Content. Uh, yeah. And this was. <laughs> <laughs> after he was running around slashing snails <laughs> which was such a strange little moment like you know as he's like this guy walking around with this big blade like you know chopping snails up because they they get his garden so that was that was funny but yeah he's the third person who's killed and you know in the scope of setting a story up where we have a slasher and we're going to be walking around killing people you've got four girls in one house Two girls in another house, two guys creeping around a house. Um, you've got a pizza delivery person, a gym coach gym who's teacher, on her way yeah. over, and a, and a weird pervy neighbor. It's like they do a great job of setting up like this whole kind of source of possible kills for the killer. And I just, in right. the scope of like that, I was like, you know, this is actually really effective the way that he, oh, and a boyfriend who drives over. Yeah, because the boyfriend, I think, is right after Mr. or not right after Mr. Content when she goes, Diane goes out to it's Diane, right? The unlikable girl uh, who goes out and finds his head falls off when she gets yeah. in the car. That was oh, great. my God. It's fantastic. So that was good. I, it, it is those kills up front that I think are the most entertaining, right? As soon as he's just chasing people around and drilling them, it's less interesting to me. I do well, like the pizza yeah. guy. That was a was highlight say, for me because they was, drill his <laughs> eyes out. That was the one I was about to say. It's like, well, that one is great because it's like, one, he's already at the door. He's talking to them, unless it was the killer who was actually talking. But at some point, like, if it is the pizza guy and he's talking to them while they're standing there, the the killer like drills his eyes open and nobody hears it and, and the guy is still propped up there like it was i don't know it was so comical when they open the door <laughs> and he's standing there with his eyes drilled out and collapses into the room that made me laugh out loud but but the the like the punchline to that joke is that he's dead on the floor 
and his body is cold. And later, I can't remember who it was. It was uh, was it Kim Jackie or, or no. Jackie? Yeah, one of them was like, "Well, you gotta eat," and pulls the pizza out from <laughs> under the dead body and eats it on the pizza. I was dying. Eats it off of the body. I think that is That's amazing. So See, those those are gems <laughs> in this movie. Just yeah. gems of, uh, that 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 really celebrate the satire and taken seriously. They're that much better. Like those. Those moments are great. And that's the stuff, like those moments that feel like, okay, that was a bit of parody that Brown had in the script that still felt like it was there. And and that's why, like, when things like that happen, it's like, okay, I feel like, I mean, it's it still is not like a great, great film, but there are moments that are going to make this one more memorable for me than some other slashers that I've seen, because it has those funny bits of like, hey, well, I'm, I'm still hungry, you know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, it just those things make it work in really strange ways. I think once once we get into that final act where it's Russ and a drill and the house and uh, I, the the sort of slasher duel at the end, I I was less interested in uh, Valerie uh, when she gets the she gets the machete and starts chasing him around with it like that that kind of stuff just didn't didn't feel as clever to me. He does lose his hand. That's Nice and gross. Yeah. And then they push him in the pool. Yeah. And well, yeah. So there's a few other things. <laughs> well, you're leaving about uh, the part out about the, the demasculization of him by chopping off the drill tip with the mach- machete, yes. which was, I mean, that yes. was in the scope of the drill being representative as his penis and like the male, this male urge to kind of thrust into everything that was around him, Mm -hmm. you know, like that was a hilarious bit. And you already mentioned that he, that it gets chopped off, but that's like the point where it does. And suddenly he is, he acts like he's rendered, you know, unable to do much at that point. And so then, you know, chopping the hand off and, and like, it just, I don't know, it made it work in a fun way for me where, um, you know, I don't know. I I liked all of that. Let me ask you, which do you think, came first the shots of the the poster because i love the the poster is the iconic poster you mentioned the the cover art in video stores right it has him legs spread with the drill coming down between his legs and and the cover of the poster has four girls cowering in front of him which is you know uh, the um in in their underwear in in their underwear and it inverts uh, like the the traditional you know covers at the time where you would have a woman's legs you know spread and have uh, some lusty young person boy usually between them and uh it, it, when you talk about those sex comedies right or yeah, yeah. porkies peeking through a peephole those kinds of things so do you think that was conceived first or staging the shots in the movie where he they're shooting between his legs and you see i think that i think the shot is it's either trish or valerie on the on the floor with the drill coming down between his legs I wouldn't be surprised if those were some elements. I, I I just I really don't know, but I I like the idea that Jones was playing around with this idea of a drill. I mean, and also I I think that again I haven't looked at the original script. I'd really love to get a hold of that original script by Brown, but this idea of this this killer using a drill it just seems designed by nature to be talking about like masculinity and the nature of like i i feel like that's part of the parody of this slasher that she was doing here with this drill and so it seems like that's something that jones probably latched onto and was playing with that in some of those shots and then 
to Corman's credit, you know, was smart to latch on to kind of that sense in the marketing. I, I feel like it all kind of probably just it was there and it just everybody kind of thought it was a great way to kind of sell it. Yeah. Yeah. And in a horror film, in the scope of a sex comedy, it makes sense for like either the sexy woman to be standing in, I mean, like graduate style, you've got the sexy woman's legs and you've got the man between them, or you have, you know, the, the sexy woman through the keyhole or whatever it is. And here it's like, it feels like a, a power position in a horror film to have this, this male figure over them with all the women in, in their lingerie. And so that kind of feels like, okay, I can see that selling you know the to the crowd that wants to see this sort of movie yeah right i i totally forgot the one other uh, kill not really kill but the the discovery of the body that i loved so much that i felt was so comical and played well uh which is when courtney courtney and valerie come over to the house and they go inside right and they don't know that anything is going on the house seems weirdly quiet and Courtney opens the refrigerator while looking backward and doesn't look inside the refrigerator for, I think, three times she opens and closes the fridge. And it turns out there is a body in there. And I can't who is that? uh, Is that Jackie? Oh, the names they all. I know. I can't remember. Uh, uh, Anyway, somebody is in there. Jackie or Trish or Nina or Jana or somebody's in there. And she does three times. She opens and closes it. (laughs) That is actually a bit of like, that's a straight up lampoon, right? That is, that is, well, that's, that's the parody. parody. That feels like that had to be from the original script because that was really genuinely funny. And that is something again, that I don't feel like you would have playing in the Friday, the 13th or the Halloween films. Like it's not like, that type of comedy feels very much too kind of too much of a a parody to be in something that was trying to be a little more serious. And we start getting again goofier stuff like that once once Freddy's in and and you know kind of with all of his one liners and everything. And so that was a really fun moment to see thrown in here. And I think that point is exactly why this movie was dare I say it ahead of its time, right? That. This movie was trying to do things that made it not fit perfectly with the other slasher films that were being made in this period, that it was it was trying to do something that made you look at slasher films and have a different experience with them. But it was directed in such a way that it was was presented so straight that the gift of hindsight makes it a more special movie than likely it would have been had we seen it in the theater together at that time. I think looking at it at the time, it it didn't review well, uh, you know, and, and so I can absolutely see why somebody who was used to slasher movies at the time would see this movie and think, oh, yeah, it's 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 kind of a cheap knockoff. Yeah, I mean, it, it has a lot of that same sort of stuff. It feels like a Corman film. It feels very low budget, you know, and it just feels like. Okay, we're just going to keep killing bodies and uh, in different ways. It's the drill, drill through the forehead or the drill through the uh, the eye sockets or whatever the case may be. It just it feels like uh, to a certain extent just kind of another slasher film out here, regardless of whether it's directed by a woman or not. And I do feel like it is something that, um, with the gift of hindsight, you do start seeing a little bit more. Uh, to it than perhaps people were noticing at the time. I mean, some critics at the time did find more to it 
than than others. You know, they felt like, okay, I'm I'm seeing that there's a little more here, uh, a little more of the the comedy and stuff like that. So it's not like it was completely um, uh, dismissed at the time, but it's certainly something that's been revisited with a little more uh, gift of hindsight. Yeah. Going back to the kills, we we talked about the fact that there were the two guys outside. But again, going back to that point of the demasculization of these men, they both get dispatched fairly quickly. And it's interesting because it's at a point when everybody, well, the four women inside and these two guys, they all know that the killer is out there. And they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we survive this? And I, I found it to be actually kind of an interesting moment where you have these two guys make this decision. We'll split up, go in different directions. He can't get both of us. And it was like, I don't know, kind of a surprisingly serious beat from these two guys where they were like, one of us is going to die, but at least we can get help. And I found that to be actually something I wasn't expecting from a film like this to have a moment of rather kind of like a, a little bit more gravitas in this conversation between these two guys acknowledging one of us is going to die, but at least we can save the girls. And I, I found that to be uh, nice. And then, of course, <laughs> that neither of them are effective at all. Again, going back to this fact that men are proven <laughs> constantly unable to do anything. They're so ineffective. You know, one of them immediately gets killed and the other is trying so hard. And this is that scene that is shot so well. It, the way that the editing is between Valerie watching TV and what's on the TV and the guy at the door and the killer killing him. All of that is shot so beautifully. Um, but again, just another guy uh, being completely ineffective, which also leads to one of the other favorite parts of the movie was the killer after he's killed, uh, whichever was the guy um, who came out to the try getting out of the garage. Apparently he had put him in the trunk of the car and <laughs> the killer comes up to the trunk and actually is counting the bodies and realizes that one isn't there and that he had gotten out and was like trying to crawl back to the house. And so then the killer, of course, uh, goes after him and kills him. But it was very, very funny. And so it, yeah, it has a lot of stuff in here that I just, it really surprised me that um, it was more than I would have expected it to be. I I actually didn't get that at at all the the why he was counting the bodies in the trunk was because one was missing and yeah. the reason i didn't get that is because up front in the movie they made a big deal about how many people he had killed to send him away now that he was yeah. an escape mental patient i had this sense like my expectation was oh he's trying to best himself he needs to kill yeah. more people than five and so he was trying to tally now that i get it <laughs> <laughs> it totally makes sense that he's he was in fact missing a body and he had to go uh fix that. Uh I I was um I, I think there is uh a, a real point to your I want to step back to the the chivalry, the unsung chivalry of the boys trying to save the girls and both doing it very badly. What I expected was that they would come to this agreement to uh, split up because the, the killer can't get both of us and that one of them would somehow betray the other, right? That there would be oh. some sort of twist that one was a chicken and he couldn't he couldn't actually follow through with it or something like that. Like I and he didn't leave the house or whatever, but they didn't do any of that. And I actually thought that was really nice, too. Like they actually made both of the guys, uh, the Hardy Boys kind of uh, level <laughs> of chivalry and yeah. uh, equal effect. So, yeah, that was good. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting one to uh, to kind of kick off this new 
series that we're looking at here. And I, I know you've seen the next two, but I will say after seeing this, I'm certainly curious to see what they do with the next two films. I'm curious for you to see what they do with the next two <laughs> films. Right. I want to just keep talking about them right now. Like, I just want to talk right through. Let's do it. <laughs> do you know what? Let's just go. Nice ahead. try. We, we should, we should say one other, one other bit that is, that ends up being a, a little bit important, uh, to the, the ongoing discussion about Slumber Party, which is the treatment of, um, Valerie and Courtney. And this is a, this is a nod from, uh, uh, from Brian in the chat room. If you want to join the chat room, you need to be a member, uh, truestory.fm slash TNR membership, um, because you could join our live stream and have, and talk at us while we're recording, just like Brian <laughs> did. And Brian asked, no thoughts on Valerie and her sister. They are next door. You've already talked about kind of the whole setup. The idea of separating those two, what is the level of protagonist in this movie related to all of the assorted girls like who who do you who do you find you follow who do you want to succeed uh who's who's in who's out like what's your what's your take on the overall landscape of slumber party girls well it's i mean they set up conflict right away with between the girls as far as why Valerie doesn't come to the party. She's she and her sister, like their family is new to the neighborhood. They've just moved here. So Trish has uh, she's invited Valerie, but uh, wh- whichever other girl like in the locker room after basketball is openly antagonistic to her because Diane. Uh, yeah, because I don't know, is it because of the volleyball or, or the or the basketball, basketball like, yeah. skill or why is she so nasty? We're not sure. But anyway, Valerie hears this and so doesn't want to come to the party. So you're creating this these conflicts between the girls and it gives us a reason as to why things are separated. And it also allows us to have uh, the younger sister and the conversations about how her sister was beating off in fifth grade or whatever. It's just like, wow, this is an interesting setup for these two characters but it was fun because and again like the playgirl that her sister goes and sneaks with Sylvester Stallone on the cover like there were a lot of funny moments with these two sisters and I think I don't know I I I found it nice in the scope of setup of the story to not just be focused on one house but to allow us to have several locations where things were happening and so that, I think, worked well. It also creates this conflict between the girls. And so, you know, is Valerie going to save the day? Is is she going to end up getting killed and they have to come save her? Like, you know, how are we setting this up as far as the, the scope of the story? I, I, I thought that was actually kind of nice to kind of give us a a sense of conflict between the girls as well. The, although I will say, the challenge that I end up having with the film, and I don't know if the filmmakers um, completely decided until late in the film, like, who's the protagonist of the film? It felt like it was going to be Trish, but then by the time we get to the end, it felt like, nope, Valerie's the protagonist. She's the one who's going to come over and save the day. And so, I don't know, it was, it was kind of a peculiar way to kind of set things up here. I I agree with you, peculiar, and now we have to just put, we just have to hold on to this conversation, which we're going to have to continue next week that's right well as pete said we'll be right back but first our credits (music) 
The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Luke Melville, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, sequels and remakes, so many begin. I mean, it is interesting that this franchise, I I don't know, my hunch is that Corman realized, you know, this idea of a group of women in trouble could perhaps lead to more popularity. And so before we even had Slumber Party Massacre 2, which is what we're talking about next week, there was Sorority House Massacre. That was 1986. That spawned a trilogy. And all of these are kind of under what is loosely just called the Massacre uh, films. And so we have the different trilogies. There's the Slumber Party Massacre trilogy plus the 2021. Uh, It's not really a remake. It's kind of a uh, revisioning of it, I think, a kind of a spinoff, um, which we're actually going to be talking about in our uh, member bonus episode for February. Then there's the Sorority House Massacre films, of which there are three, and supposedly a fourth one that that's uh, is in talks. And then there's the Cheerleader Massacre films, uh, which was those were 2003 and 2011. So you've got which amazingly different... has the same poster as this one, but the guy has a chainsaw between his yeah. legs. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, exactly. And then, actually, there was a spinoff of this whole series from 2015 called Shark Kansas Women's Prison Massacre, which I'm sure is in your wheelhouse. Uh, Dominique Swain oh God, and Tracy Andy. Lords are in that one, and it is, of course, um, Sharks Women's Prison Massacre. <laughs> it's everything that you want in a movie like this. My goodness, you're telling me that is somehow spiritually connected to the Slumber Party Massacre movie? Is that what you it's just a, said to me? It's a it's a it's spin-off of this series. Yes, that's right. Who plus who's plus, our connecting inter- character? Oh it's, my it's, god. It's a, it's, a, it's just a spin-off. I don't know if it actually ties in in any specific way in the stories. No, no, Andy, you just got me so excited that this exists and is connected somehow to Driller Killer. I am I'm in sharks. That's who he should have been fighting the whole time. (laughs) Well, you'll have to watch it and let me know. But I also wanted to say that Norman Reedus, uh, an actor who we both love, he is actually working on a TV series based on the sorority (laughs) house massacre. Um, That sub series of this overall series. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it's it is a whole thing. It is just a big old thing of all these massacre films. I've already rented Sharkansas Women Prisons Massacre. <laughs> I've already rented it on Apple TV. I just paid four dollars. There you go to get this. You'll have to let me know. That's how excited I am to watch it. Now that I've already watched the other ones. It probably yeah. ties into like Cheerleader Massacre 2 or something. So you're going to have to watch all the Sorority House it. Massacre, all the Cheerleader I, Massacre yeah. films, just so you know how Shark Kansas Women's Prison Massacre ties in. Yes. Yep. And did you I, say I Shark? It's not, it's, it's Shark and Saw, I guess. Because it's Shark. Uh, it is, but I, it is. Yeah. It, but it sounds so natural because that's how I, shark when saw. I was a child, I used to say Arkansas. Yeah. As that's what we yeah. said in my, but it's because like shark, I lived in Oklahoma. Yeah, shark. Kansas, but it's Shark 
Arkansas. Arkansas. It's the Arkansas Women's Prison. Women's Prison. The poster, the art is actually the Arkansas Women's Prison, and then they've like scrawled in blood the SH in front of it. And massacre below it. Yeah, massacre. Right. So, God, so glad we figured this out. Uh, I can't wait to report my bonus. Oh, for crying out loud, Stig in the member chat room just said the whole shark and saw movie is on youtube why did i just well let's just say it's i i hope i get a better transfer how about that <laughs> transfer it was shot on i8 who are we kidding yeah. oh my gosh <laughs> all right what else do we have to talk about shall we talk about uh uh do you are you done or should we talk about are there more spinoffs to talk that's about it. or that's... can we talk about the budget all right give it a t- how to do it the box office <laughs> Well, for her first feature, Jones had what's probably a pretty typical Corman budget to work with. She had $220,000. That is $693,000 in today's dollars. Still like ultra low budget. Uh, the movie premiered in L.A. on September 10th, 1982. And then it was released just in New York City on November 12th on a very busy pre-holiday release weekend as it opened opposite Alone in the Dark, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, Five Days One Summer, Jimmy the Kid, They Call Me Bruce, and White Dog. Very busy weekend. Uh, but that was it for its theatrical run, just New York. Still, it did earn $3.6 million, or $11.3 million in today's dollars. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 140000 and gave Corman yet another movie in the black. Wow. Wow, Corman. You know, they say he had problems with the movie, and then he actually squeaks it by. Yeah. Makes a little money. That's, that's what he does. All right. Well, here we go. It's time for um, it, it. It's time for our ratings, which means we first have to do the trailer for the theater of the mind next week. That's right. We'll be right back for those ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie: Slumber Party Massacre Two, directed by Deborah Brock. <laughs> Bates has got some weird friends. I have got the fastest growing bit I have ever had in my entire life. I mean, look at this thing. <laughs> I think your sweetheart's been taking too many diet pills. Here's a chicken sandwich if you want to cut. She should have listened to her sister. Don't pick me all the way. Because when she and her band get ready to party. Do anything you want to. Go time. It's more than just a great time. No girls really did this stuff. It's Slumber Party Massacre 2. Now it's time for the fun part. He's in his house somewhere. It's nine o'clock and ready to rock. My motorcycle's out of hot. Slumber Party Massacre 2. If you go, don't go all the way. Oh God, anybody got any tranks? Letterboxd, Andy. How would you possibly rate this 
this film. It's we've talked about the ups and downs. We've talked about the sort of collision of uh, ideas in this movie, but also the gems. There are gems. There are nuggets of gold. Where do you, where does that put it for you? Yeah, it's uh, definitely a film that has issues, but it also had a lot of stuff that surprised me and it worked. So, you know, I'm going to give it three stars and a heart. I feel like it's an okay place to start with this franchise. Yeah, I'm I am right there with you. See if it goes up or down from there. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but this feels like a to me a three star movie just in, in terms of where it lives. And I think there are probably a lot of these eighty slasher movies that would land right at three stars. They're not they're not transcendent experiences, but I had a good time. It, it gave me some good laughs, and um, and I'll give it a heart because you know uh, my newfound love of horror, uh, which is now an old found love of horror. Apparently, you know. There are people who are newer found loves of horrors than I am. And so that makes me the old, the old, uh, old man on the, on the front the old, with the banjo. The old shoe. Yeah. Oh, wow. The old shoe. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, all right. So, uh, three and a heart. That leaves it three stars with a heart over in Letterboxd. And remember, you can go to thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd and get your patron or pro membership. You'll get a discount of 20%, and it works for renewals as well. So what did you think about the Slumber Party Massacre? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about it this week. When a movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Mine's a little bit longer. Do you mind if I go first? It's a five star. Sure. I've read yours, it. and I think it'll be a nice capper to mine. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe not. I don't know. I'm overthinking already. Look, this is 1313 <laughs> Tony the Terror, who gives it a five star. So bear with me. I have seen this movie so many times. But today was a rainy day, and for whatever reason, I like watching this during heavy rain, so I revisited it again. It's such a great slasher that maybe isn't quite as well-known as the genre staples, but totally holds its own with those bigger guys. It brilliantly walks the line between silly and dark, with clever jokes and funny scenes peppered throughout. The body in the refrigerator and the pizza eating are absolutely classic. This is basically one of those R.L. Stein YA novels given the grown-up treatment, and I am here for it. Plus, you've got Brinky Stevens in her first role, and you can clearly see how she would go on to become a scream queen. I love these strong 80s vibes, except the scene where she's making Kool-Aid. How did we ever think that much sugar was okay? <laughs> That was another laugh out loud bit of her making Kool-Aid for her sister. I thought that was really, really funny. That's how you make Kool-Aid. It's not sugar, man. You put, have you ever made, you put a ton of sugar into it. It's not sweet. You have to, you have to put sugar. I'm just saying, wait a minute. So I don't make Kool-Aid anymore. They they didn't solve that sugar to Kool-Aid ratio in Uh, subsequent years. Like now it's just, just a packet. And it's just super synthetic sweet, hyper sweet. You don't put like a whole three cups in that jug. I don't remember. I just feel like the last time that I made sugar for or sugar Kool-Aid for my kids that, you know, you pour the you measure out the Kool-Aid because they 
it's probably cheaper for them to make it without having to put the sugar in it. And right. then you just, you measure out like the same amount of sugar. So you got this giant, like double cup thing of sugar that you're pouring into it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't do that around here. You're a great parent though. Okay. What's yours? <laughs> Thank you. So I went with Lucy who's reviewed it a few times, but this is uh, an earlier review of hers from 2019. She gave it three stars. Later, she gives it four stars. Uh, but the first time she watched it, she gave it three stars and she had this to say. The girls at this slumber party, let's try not to get murdered. Me, last weekend at my last slumber party after one shot of Grey Goose. I just don't know what I'm doing with my life. Now, let's yell about the state of American politics for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lucy. Lucy slays me every time. That was fun. Thanks, Letterboxd. You're the best. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.